well, we're still in our study in Genesis, and as we've been in that study, I'm breaking it up into a series of mini-series, and we've been doing a mini-series on chapter 3 of Genesis, The Fall. In week 1, we covered The Temptation, verses 1 through 6. Last week, we covered the fall itself, verses 6 through 13. And this third and final week, we cover the curses that resulted from the fall, verses 14 through 24. And it doesn't sound like a very cheerful topic, right? Um, We're going to spend our entire morning talking about curses. I mean, who wants to sit around and talk about the fall of mankind and the curse that has resulted ever since? It's not really, it doesn't warm the cuckles of your heart so much. Um, But another way, we're going to spend some time on this. It actually is a very positive topic. I don't think that I'd be going too far by saying that this might be the most important topic ever in terms of making sense of the madness that we see in the world around us. What do I mean by that? If there was no explanation of the curse that we're going to be getting into, just think about that for a minute, if the explanation was lacking. No explanation of how it happened. No explanation of why it happened. No explanation of its impact. No explanation of why God not only allowed, but decreed that it had to be this way. Well, if we were left without that, what would we end up thinking about God? I mean, seriously, that's why I can't understand a purely humanistic world view. If we looked out at this world and all of its ills and all of its pains, the loss of loved ones, chronic pain, natural disasters that have taken out hundreds of thousands at one time, global poverty, the Holocaust, abuse of all different kinds, corporate greed, cancer, constant fighting of wars and rumors of wars. If that's all we had to go on, this world would not be a very great place. I would have some serious doubts about a God who would create a world like that. I'm being serious. If all I had to go on was to look at this, I would have some serious doubts about the character of a God who would create a world like this if this was its intention and then just let it happen. And I'm not saying that there is not beauty or things that take our breath away. I've preached two weeks about the beauty in this world. But if I looked out at this crazy world and was able to say, is this really as good as it gets? I'd have some serious doubts about a God who couldn't create something better than this. I'm not trying to sound heretical. I think as you go through the passage, you'll agree with me as well. And it's funny because I know... And not just those with a humanistic worldview, but Christians struggle with this. You might be one of them. I've sat with so many Christians who wrestle. And you know, if I was honest, I would say I've also been one of those Christians who during a time of discouragement or a time of having my faith rattled, looked out at the world and said, God, I don't understand why you would allow this. And I remember watching like the footage from the Haiti earthquake a few years ago, and how can you not look at something like that and just see devastation and just see the bodies being carried here and there and just say, God, why? 
Why does it have to be like this? Well, we're going to get into it, but that's the million-dollar question. If God is able to stop the insanity, why doesn't he? It's one of the most often answered questions. If you're in a time of wrestling with that beyond today's message, I would encourage you to get the book, Where is God When It Hurts? by Philip Yancey. Um, Just a really, really good book that speaks to some of these things. But that's why this chapter is not as gloomy as you think. Because if I didn't understand the effects and the far-reaching impact of the fall... I might be asking those same questions. If I didn't know that Jesus already won the war, and someday that he's going to come back, and he himself is going to make right all that has been impacted and wronged by sin, I would despair if I didn't believe that. I honestly, I've spent a lot of time this week thinking through, how did I even try to make sense of this world before I knew Jesus. I've spent more of my life thus far not knowing Jesus than I have spent knowing Jesus. And the answer was I didn't try to make sense of it. I tried to put anything in me that would numb myself, anything possible, so that I did not have to face reality on reality's terms. But knowing that the reality of the fall is there truly helps the way that we look out the world. None of this, none of those things that I mentioned are what God wanted for us. God never wanted us to lose loved ones to various diseases. God never wanted there to be a world where sex trafficking is a reality that we have to deal with. God never desired racism or prejudice or hatred of any kind. These things do not stem from the heart of God. Jesus picks up on this when he says, look, would you wish any of these things on your children? Of course you wouldn't. So if you being evil would never wish these things on your children then how could you think that your heavenly Father, who is perfect, would desire such brokenness for you? It's a deep question. I try to avoid picking on people's worldview, even when it's counter to Christ, because I don't think that it produces all that much fruit when we attack people's worldview. I'm much more uh, of the persuasion that we should be so deeply immersed in a biblical and Christian worldview that we don't feel insecurity because we know that we've been given a worldview that is based in truth, the only truth, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and there's no other way to the Father by Him. And we're able to point to that truth. That's how I prefer to do it. Be immersed in that. Know it. Be trained in it. Be able to speak it. Be linguistically trained in how to share it. But for this topic, at least, it makes me have to ask the question, how do people make sense of this world without understanding much of what we're going to see today, that this world was not supposed to be this way? If you really believed, honest question, because I don't know where everybody stands here. I don't know. um, I've sat in a church and not been a Christian before, so I don't want to make assumptions 
on everyone here, but if you really believed that this is what the world evolved into, I don't know how that could be a, a happy thought. It's de-evolution in almost every single respect. That would be sad. So understanding the fall is critical to having a worldview that makes any sense of the insanity that's out there. So apologetics lesson over. Now we'll get into the scripture. And before you turn to Genesis 3, you can flip in your Bibles to Romans 8. It's also projected up back there if you want to use that so that we could see the far-reaching effects of the fall and the curse. I read this passage last week, but I want to go a little bit deeper in it, starting in verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all of creation has been groaning together with pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. That means all of you. That means me. You know, all, we all ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. For this hope we are saved. Now that hope that is, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So remember, this is just one paragraph about the fall. I could have picked several other ones. There's a bunch of them all over the Bible. But I want to give you guys just a list of results of just one paragraph about the fall. You see, suffering came as a result of the fall in verse 18. All of creation was subjected to futility in verse 20. Bondage, meaning slavery, came into the world as a result of the fall in verse 21. How about this broad category? The corruption of all things in verse 21. All of creation groaning with the pains of childbirth in verse 22. Do we have any moms out there? Any moms? Uh, I've got a couple of moms. All right, at least three. Well, I've been told that this is the one analogy that is just off limits for men to use. Uh, I, I've been told that no matter how bad you're hurting, no matter how much of a backache you have, no matter what surgery you need, do not say to a woman that this hurts like childbirth must have hurt because they will go full on rage at you. Um, there's a reason that that pain is set aside. There's a reason why when the Bible is actually looking for an analogy to use to describe great pain, it picks that one because it's an uncommon pain. It's a pain like any other pain, and it didn't have to be that way, which I'll get into. Then it says that we likewise, in verse 23, 
We all groan from these pains. And just in case he thought, you know what, maybe there's this one area, um, any Trekkies out there, you know, we're looking for the final frontier. Maybe there's this one final frontier out there that might still be perfect and not touched by the curse. It says in verse 22 that the whole of creation has been impacted by the curse. And when you think about it, like what would be the final frontier? Um, Antarctica? And all the studies that are coming out recently, we're finding out that we're even messing that up. Um, space? You guys ever read up on space junk? Like we, it wasn't good enough to litter our planet. We had to go and start to litter space. Like every single thing that we touch, we destroy. That's the effects of the fall. So the passage... If you want to turn to Genesis, the passage begins with the first curse. There's three curses, and the first one is the curse on the serpent, starting in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and, you, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. Look, all of these... Um, this is one of these passages where having a little bit of knowledge of Hebrew actually helps out quite a bit because the English is just not strong enough to be able to linguistically express what the author is getting across. You're able to see that there is a purpose behind each one of these curses. God's judgments are never random or capricious. You're going to hear that over and over. He did not sit in heaven like this random and capricious God. There is an order to all of these judgments. And you'll see that every single one of the three judgments, the serpent, the woman, the man, corresponds to something he said directly or something that directly unfolded during the curse in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So first we see in verse 14 that the serpent is cursed above all of the livestock of the field. This is really fascinating in the Hebrew. The, the Hebrew term for curse is aror. Let me hear you say aror. All right. Which is actually a play on words of the Hebrew, Hebrew term arum. Let me hear you say arum. All right. You guys know about as much Hebrew as me now. So arum was the word that was used to describe Satan is crafty in Genesis 3.1. So God is saying, hey, Satan, you thought that you were being Arum, and now the rest of your existence, you're going to be Aror. God's being pretty clever with him. You thought you were crafty. Now you shall be cursed. And then he says, you are going to be spending the rest of your existence treading through life on your belly eating dust. And while crawling on his belly, he's told that he would eat dust all day long. And, and this is actually a stronger judgment than it may seem. Not that it seems like a weak sauce judgment, right? But this is actually a stronger judgment. The term dust, check this out. It's the same Hebrew term that's used in verse 19 when it tells Adam, from dust you came and from the dust you're going to return. This wasn't by accident. It's like he's saying, just like Adam was cursed and he's going to return to the dust, the serpent is going to return 
to the dust. But not only that, you're going to eat dirt every single day of your life as a reminder of this impending curse that is real, very real. He's telling the snake in not so many words, your days are numbered. The best part of your existence from here on out is going to be climbing on your stomach and eating dust. And then it's going to get worse. And this is a conscious reminder of that. And just as a quick tangent, I've heard people try to get cute with this passage and say, we don't really know that the serpent is Satan. It never identifies him as Satan in this passage. Well, technically that's true. It does not use the Hebrew word Satan in this passage. But Revelation 20 could not put it any clearer. It says in Revelation 20 verse 2, and he sees the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. I mean, how does it get any clearer? The dragon, the ancient serpent, who is Satan. I mean, it's pretty much a slam dunk case here, right? 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 So we're all in agreement. Thank you. And I don't bring that up for no reason. I bring it up because he actually has a much, much more severe punishment awaiting for him. So the curses here are just the beginning for Satan. Even when we get to the fact that his head will be crushed, just the beginning of the curses for Satan. So that's where the curse differs from that of Adam and Eve. Here's the first good news. His end is 100% definite and written in stone, and he will receive every curse here and then some for all of eternity. But he is the only one in this passage who has to inherit the curse for all of eternity. There's a way out for Adam and Eve, and by extension, for you and me. And we read about it in the next verse. Verse 15 is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This has been known for centuries as the Proto-Evangelion or the Proto-Evangelion if you will. And that means it's the first occurrence of the gospel in all of Scripture. Think of the word prot. It's where we get our word prototype from. What's a prototype? It's the original. It's the mold. It's the thing that everything after was patterned after it. And then you have evangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel. That's why we say when you're evangelizing, you're literally taking the gospel out to people who need to hear it. So then you put them together and it's saying this is the first prototype of the gospel that you see in all of Scripture. But something that gets missed when people just isolate this verse, which is typically what's done from its context, that it doesn't stand alone. This is not separate from this long list of curses. This is actually part of the curse of the snake, which means that the curse of the snake is actually part of the good news. The cursing of the snake is part of the pro-evangelon. And I'm going to get into more of the gospel significance of this in the end. But first, I want you to understand that this passage means something 
in its direct context. We named the curses for the serpent in verse 14, but let's look at the curses in the midst of our good news verse in verse 15. It says, God will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the woman's offspring and the serpent. This means that the serpent is no longer going to have the place of power or prominence that he once held. From now on, the serpent will be forever known as a sign and a picture of evil. And I'm sure we have a couple of snake lovers out there. I'm just saying, don't be that guy just to be a contrarian. You know that this is true. I mean, think of all the examples. It's like the universally accepted sign for evil. If, if you meet a biker in the parking lot when you leave up, and he says, hey, my name's Snake. Are you going to be like, hey, come on over and eat chili with my kids? Or are you going to want to find out something about this guy? Or think of Karate Kid. Who did Daniel's son and Mr. Miyagi go up against? Cobra Kai! Man, that's cra- I've asked you guys so many questions over the years, and that's the most feedback I've ever gotten. That, I don't know if that's awesome or pathetic, but I know that I'm going to put more Karate Kid analogies in my sermons from now on. It's been used for years to designate that something is poisonous. They put a snake on the bottle. If someone is deceptive and lying in the weeds and trying to harm you and you call them a snake in the grass, you're not complimenting them. I mean, let's, let's take the day in its context. It's St. Patrick's Day for crying out loud. And why do we all celebrate St. Patrick's Day? Because St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. I know he didn't. I mean, we know that's not a true story. But it's a fake story that's lived on for 1,600 years. Because people don't want to be around snakes. Otherwise, the story would have stopped. So I get it. He didn't really do that. But why do we keep telling that story? Because people generally think it's a good thing if you have an island with no snakes. Um, I could say more about the Irish, but I won't. Um, We were missing several members of the worship team today, and we used to call that the Irish flu at the job that I worked at on St. Patty's Day, but uh, I'm just kidding. And then it says, he will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Again, I'm going to get more into that at the end, but it's saying even though you're going to get your shot in, this is still a part of the curse because he goes from being a powerful force to be reckoned with and a powerful force of influence to being an ankle biter. And I don't know about you, but when I think of the term ankle biter, I don't, it doesn't instill fear in me, right? He's saying your power is limited and eventually your power is going to be done altogether. So then it moves on to the curse of the woman. Let's look at verse 16. It says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I'm just going to let you know from here on out, most of the things that I'm going to say may be a tad bit controversial. Um, I hope you're okay with that. Um, But the first curse that he mentions is that he will multiply her pain in childbearing. I don't know the answer to this, 
I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought it. But has anyone ever wondered what childbirth would have been like if it not for the curse? I mean, it doesn't say that they had any children yet here. I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to read something into the text. But would you just be like walking along the field and then say like, hey, we better stop for a minute. I think I'm going to pop out a kid. Like, <laughs> I have no clue. But the curse seems to indicate that childbirth was not intended to be painful before the fall. And now, well, it is what it is. Another interesting part of the curse is there's this commandment repeated multiple times in Scripture to be fruitful and multiply. We read it throughout the Bible. So God is calling his people to be fruitful and multiply, even though he just told them that it will happen as a result of great pain. Try to wrap your minds around that. I mean, it's the same concept as the Great Commission. Hey, you, you're the church. Go out and be fruitful and multiply. Blessed are you who are persecuted for not my name's sake. So multiplication always comes through pain in Scripture. It's wild to think about the fact that it was not supposed to be that way. The next part of the curse, it says, your desire shall be for your husband. That doesn't really sound like a curse, does it? But this is another passage where the English doesn't really translate the Hebrew very well. It can be interpreted one of two ways. It could either be interpreted, it could be connected to the previous two lines in the verses, meaning you will have a desire for your husband, even though childbirth will produce great pain, or it's connected to the next part of the verse, your desire shall be to rule over or have dominion over your husband. For several reasons, I take the second interpretation, and I think I can make a pretty airtight case on it. First of all, grammatically, this is poetry. So the natural flow of poetry would be first line is completed by the second line, third line is completed by the fourth line. So grammatically, it fits like this. Most importantly, like I said before, God is not a capricious God who just doles out judgments. Each of these curses correlates something that was mentioned prior in the passage. So at the tree, Eve took the lead even though it was supposed to be the job of her husband, Adam. So not only does it make more sense grammatically, it makes more sense when we consider how the curse unfolded. He's essentially saying, since this all began... Because you had this desire to usurp authority and depart from the natural order of things, from now on, your desire is going to be to continue to rule over him, but that desire will continue to be unmet. Because just because Eve messed up here in the garden doesn't mean that God was going to change his created order, which he had called very good before the fall. So the rest of the verse, it has always been God's design that man will lead. Even in good old 2019. Um, I know that it's not PC to say that you should be the leader of your home or the leader in your marriage today, but it's God's design, and when it's done well, it's beautiful. I praise God for the men here who lead their homes like biblical men of God. Unfortunately, fallen 
people have abused this and have used it as a license to be abusive. And cowardly men have used this as a license to justify their actions. So just as the woman who thinks that culture should dictate how we live rather than Scripture, and then use that as a license to move contrary to God's design, and that's really what God's getting at here. It's saying that God had His design, and part of the curse is that the woman will kick against that design. And as we get near the end, I'll be describing more about how we see that in action playing itself out today. But next... We see the curse on the man in verses 17 through 19. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in verse 17, God recaps what happened in the first seven verses and lists it as, this is the reason. I'm reminding you that this is the reason behind the curse. And the first curse to Adam is God cursing the ground at the end of verse 17. Remember that passage we just read in Romans 8 just a few minutes ago? The whole earth is groaning as a result of this curse. The fall affected everything. The next part of the curse is even though the ground is cursed, it will be what provides your food and your ability to sustain yourself and your family all the days of your life. Only now it's not going to be easy any longer. Remember that luscious garden that I placed you in? It's about to go bye-bye. Remember how I used to just have all of the animals just walk right up to you directly? Yeah, well, good luck with that now. Remember how simple and seamless it was to have dominion over every single animal. Well, go walk up and try to subdue a grizzly bear and see how that works for you, Adam. It's not good. I've been, oh, I've been wanting to for a long time. Some people know here that I have a fetish with wanting to fight a bear, and I, I just can't go past without saying that. I think that bears swing like this, and that they wouldn't know what to do with just a straight punch to the nose. So God gave me posable thumbs. They don't have that, so I think I would win. So tangent over, I'm going to move, um, move on. But the next part of the curse is that thorns and thistles will be the norm when it comes to getting your food. Yet you're still going to have to dig through those thorns and thistles just to eat all of the days of your life. Something that you clearly took for granted when it was so easy is now going to be difficult for you. In the Hebrew grammar, this is actually supposed to mirror the curse of the wife when you look at the poetry. It's saying it is going to take a great amount of pain to get what you need to survive yet you will have to do it anyway because survival depends on it. Just like the woman will go through great pain, but the survival of mankind depends on it. That which is formally easy is going to come as a result of great pain, and you are going to have to endure it anyway for survival. The next part of the curse is that 
it will be by the sweat of your face that you shall eat bread. The phrase eating bread in Scripture, I think you know this, is often used as a picture of God's provision. I could give you a bunch of verses, but I need to go no further than the Lord's Prayer. What do we say? Give us this what? They are daily bread. What are we praying for when we pray that prayer? We're praying, sustain us today, God. Give us what we need. Give us what we need for our survival today, O Lord. To put it even more simply, it's saying that where is before the curse, before the curse, provision came easily. Now it's going to be difficult and it's going to come as a result of hard work. And let me add to this because sometimes this is taught so poorly. The fall or work is not a result of the fall. Hear me on that. Work is not a result of the fall. You see work in the garden before the fall. Cultivate the fields, Adam. Have dominion over the animals. This was work. What it's saying is that now work is going to become difficult and it's going to become laborious. Nowhere in the Bible do you read that work is a bad thing. In fact, you read multiple verses that say the opposite. Like in Thessalonians, hey, if they ain't willing to work and they ain't willing to eat, are they? Uh, I mean, God does not talk down about work. But work was not supposed to be so difficult before the fall. It wasn't contending with the thorns of the ground. It wasn't by the sweat of our brow. It was enjoyable and it was a privilege to be able to partake in. We didn't have things like dishonest bosses. We didn't have things like back pain from swinging a hammer all day. I'm thinking of my brother Seski this morning, one of our pastors here. Um, his back is so twisted up that he can't move from the injuries that he sustained to his knees, back, and shoulder while fighting for us as a soldier. I met with him twice this week, and, and the guy can't move. That's why he's not here this morning. There wasn't supposed to be back pain. There wasn't supposed to be war. All of that was a result of the fall. You didn't have mean-spirited customers that have to flip out because they have to wait an extra three minutes to buy their pack of Tic Tacs. Um, I could keep going, but there's no need. The point was that work was intended to be pleasant and not something that came by the sweat of the brow. I don't know how you view heaven, but you will be working the whole time. But it will be glorious. We're not going to be a bunch of chubby naked babies flying around <laughs> on uh, playing harps on clouds. But the work will be the sweetest thing that you can imagine. It's, it's going to be so rewarding. And you want to know why it's going to be so rewarding? Guess who your shift manager is going to be? Jesus is going to be your boss. You'll be like, Jesus, as we're working, can we just spend, I don't know, eternity's long. So do you have 50,000 years or so for me to just ask you a few questions? Like, that's going to be awesome. Work is not a part of the curse. And then lastly, the most painful of all the curses, God says, I made you from dirt, and you're going to go back to the dirt. 
This must have been mind-blowing because they had no concept of death. They're being taught something completely new. I'm one of those people that actually still believes the stuff in the Bible like there was no death before sin. We didn't just evolve to Adam and all the theistic evolution explanations that just make no sense to me. They didn't know what death was. So after God created Adam from the dirt, Dirt takes on this whole new meaning. It was positive back then, right? I've scooped you up. I've created you from this dirt. Now, every time it's used in Scripture, it has a negative sense. It represents a curse. The serpent was forced to eat the dirt. It represents a curse on the earth. The dirt will no longer yield easily. It represents death here in this verse. If you go through the Psalms, the same word is used to express anguish. When he's saying, I sat with anguish, with dirt and dust upon my head. So let's start to get practical. I've got about 10 minutes left here. Let's get practical as we close. Where do we see the curses today? The short answer is everywhere. So let's go back. The curse of the woman One has to look no further than the millions of abortions and murders of the unborn to see the curse being played out today. Someone wants to go outside of God's will and make a baby. But the pain of having that child, mostly emotional and lifestyle, would be too great. So they try to circumvent the curse by further deepening the curse through murderous violence. I'm not trying to be heavy here. But I'm trying to be real with you. And I'm not trying to say that man doesn't have a part in this aspect of the curse because I've heard horror stories, sisters. Many abortions first began with a wicked man doing a wicked thing. And with people, all of them began with somebody stepping outside of the will of God's design. Again, I know it's not PC to say this stuff in a church. But if the church does not stick up for the rights of the unborn, who will? We are to be the voice of the voiceless. That is our calling. It's a unique calling from what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are agents of reconciliation, called to step into areas where death reigns and to bring life whenever possible. Another place where we see the curse play itself out today in the lives of women is radical feminism. Hear me out on this. By feminism, I don't mean that crazy notion that women are equal to men and should be treated with respect. That's just biblical. That's just what God has called us to. I don't mean that women should not be able to receive equal wages for equal work to men because that's just biblical. I don't mean that women should not stand up for themselves in the midst of patriarchal chauvinism. Heck, I don't even trust a man who observes patriarchal chauvinism and sits idly by and doesn't say anything. To me, that man is not a man. What I mean by radical feminism is I'm going to, I'm talking about the type of feminism that has its roots in saying, I know what the Bible says, but. Anytime you start a sentence with, I know what the Bible says, 
but. I know what the Bible says, but. I know that it says that the man should lead the church, that it should lead our household, but I'm going to do it my way because culture has told me I'm liberated to do so in 2019. That's not liberation, brothers and sisters. That's bondage, and people have bought a lie. We needed to swing the pendulum. We really did from how poorly women were treated. It's disgusting that it's only been in the last century that women were considered allowed to vote because they were considered finally intelligent enough to be able to cast a ballot. That's disgusting. We needed to swing the pendulum. But if you research the roots of feminism, it started simply with godly women wanting equal rights for women and equality, and it's morphed into the disgusting form that it takes today. How do we see, I know I'm going to be popular after this message. How do we continue to see the man's curse? We see it in the workplace. We see it with hypocrisy in the workplace, complaining in the workplace, grumbling in the workplace, people compromising their morals to go do something under the table so that I can get a few extra bucks that I don't have to be taxed on. Men's bodies breaking down prematurely because of physical labor, having to worry whether your next check is going to come, refusing to work by the sweat of your brow and instead learning to manipulate the nanny state and letting it provide for you all the days of your life. None of these things existed before the curse. Do you hear me on this? The primary way that we see the curse, though, in man is the way that some men interact with women and the way that they lead their homes. Men, I want every one of you to look me in the eye. If you're looking down at something, like I'm serious, you are called to love your wife the way that Christ loved the church, period. I'm gonna be real with you. Every single time I hear a man thump his chest about what a man he is and talk down about his wife and a group of other men, I lose all respect for that man every single time. It's almost impossible, apart from repentance, for that man to gain back that respect. That man is not even a man in my eyes. He's some kind of like crossbreed of coward who doesn't deserve my respect and just some like, ew. That's, all. that's, that's who you are if you can't respect a woman. We see this curse every time a man uses intimidation on a woman. We see this curse every time a man manipulates a woman. We see this curse every time a man is too much of a coward to stand up for his woman. Let's go even less violent. Even when a man just passively refuses to lead his home, it's yet another proof of the curse. So in closing soon uh, here, how's Christ using the church to reverse the curse? I don't want to go all doom and gloom. Christ's church is being used to help reverse the church. When a woman demonstrates godly submission because she believes the Bible, when the rest of the world says, oh, you poor, weak-minded woman, you're reversing the curse. When a woman is out with a group of other men who are talking about or bad-mouthing their husbands and she refuses to take part because she loves and honors and respects her husband, that woman is reversing the curse. 
When a man goes to a job every day, a job where nobody will ever know his name, nobody's going to pat him on the back with attaboys because he feels a calling to support his family that he can't shake. That is reversing the curse. When a man refuses to belittle or intimidate or lord authority over a woman, but instead washes her feet and washes her with the word and treats her with all reverence and humility, that is reversing the curse. Sometimes I have something in my mind and I won't put in my notes because I'm like, uh, if I'm not supposed to say this, I just won't say it. Um, but if you bring it up anyway. When I look at the Barsh family who has chosen to go and adopt children and change their life so that they can be able to help others who would be voiceless. That's the church reversing the curse. I've just watched the Smiths take into foster children into their home. One of the primary things that God called us was orphans who were in need of him. That's reversing the curse. So there's a lot of gloom here, but the church is doing awesome things to reverse the curse. And the reason that we could do this is because of verse 15. Our Savior, the seed of the woman, has crushed the head of the serpent. The serpent bruised his heel when Christ was killed on the cross. For a moment, he was dumb enough to think that he had a victory during the midst of Christ's greatest triumph. But our God rose again and crushed his head. Our God has already won the war. And because God has crushed the serpent and died to take away the curse of death, when we put our trust in him, you know what 2 Corinthians 5 calls you? It calls you a new creation. And new creations could do things that your old creation couldn't do before. New creations are being used to recreate the Imago Dei, the image of God in a way that enables us to be able to reverse the curse. And even greater new creations are someday going to all be gathered around the throne of Jesus when we see no remnants of the curse to be found. So let's finish this all-important chapter and look at the merciful eviction. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made, for Adam, made Adam for his wife and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hands and take and also eat of the tree and eat, and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he had taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim with flaming swords that turned away, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, first, we see he named his wife. I'm not sure what he called her up until that point. That's kind of an interesting one. You know, that's something you usually get through on date one, right? But apparently it was at this point that he named his wife and she's not hey you anymore. Um, I got lost on that. I'm not even kidding. In my studies, I apologize. I got lost on that for about an hour. So about an hour I was gone this week. I was just like, what did he call her? It's so weird. Did she not even have a name? Did they just grunt at each other? But anyway, uh, Adam's naming her is not insignificant. It reinforces that God's intended order still existed after the fall. 
And her name is not insignificant. She's called the mother of all mankind. And this is true directly, but it's even more true when you think of it through the verse 15 gospel proclamation sense. Remember when God told Abraham, look at the stars of the sky. Your children are going to be more numerous. Count the sand of the shore. Your children are going to be more numerous than that. Well, this carries a similar weight. The seed of the woman I told you about All life is going to happen because of the offspring that comes from her. Then God creates for them garments in 22. This is also significant because they're not wearing their fig leaves anymore. Just think of the few things it tells us. It tells us these garments were created by God and not man. The coverings required the death of a living thing. And it says that God was the one who clothed them. This is another picture of the gospel. No man-made covering can cover your sin. Our salvation required the death of one who was innocent to be able to cover our guilt. And God is the only one who can clothe us unto salvation, not ourselves. That language of God clothing is found throughout the scriptures and things like, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless I stand before the throne. And then there's the counsel in verse 23 of what to do with this new fallen mankind. Uh, there's two views of who's conversing here. I've already, this is a meaty passage. I want it to be shorter, I'm sorry. But, uh, so I'm not going to go far into this. There's the view of the divine council. John shared that a few weeks ago. And then there's the view that it's the Trinity that's conferring within itself. I take the second view that it's the Trinity because of the usage of the covenant word Yahweh for the Lord. And also because it was going to be incredibly costly to pull off this rescue mission for every member of the Trinity. The son was going to have to be crushed and give his life to take upon his shoulders the sins of the world. The father, as Isaiah 53, was going to have to be pleased to crush him so that in doing so, you might be his ransom. The spirit would have the mission of filling sinners with God's presence for all of humanity. Sometimes people can think that the spirit got off easy on on that one. Man, the spirit has to think and see all the stuff that's in my head all day. I'm telling you, he did not get off easy on that one. And then God removes them from Eden, but check out the language. It's such a beautiful picture of grace. When they're kicked out, they have to go work the ground from which they've taken. God wanted to give them freely, to work of a ground that they could work freely, but now they've dishonestly chosen to take that which is not theirs. So the offer... Is still there, but it's changed. And lastly, in verse 24, they expel them from the garden, put a cherubim with a flaming sword. And what's the reason that's given? So that they didn't eat of the tree of life. They already chose death. Sin already entered the world. So God's being merciful. Think about this. Has anybody ever read the portrait of Dorian Gray? where the guy just keeps getting, um, he has this portrait that just gets older and older that shows the debased life that he's lived, yet he continues to look the same way. Imagine if you were to live forever and see all of the corruption that just gets more and more and more corrupt. You, your body continued to break down and you were unable to die. What God did here was mercy. But there is good news. Look at the story ends. Look at Revelation 22, 1-5. 
It ends exactly where it began. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb, Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river was the tree of life that it just spoke about. We get to go to the tree of life now with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The curse is no more. It's like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young said, we got to get ourselves back to the garden, right? Jesus is there. The tree of life is there. So a couple of questions as I close. First, the eternal question. The only way to see life that's not tarnished by the curse is putting your faith in the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. Have you trusted on the Lord Jesus for your salvation? Second, a personal question. How is Christ reversing the curse in your life? In what ways are you seeing the Spirit reversing the impact of the curse and the heart of rebellion and sin and beginning to conform you to the image of the seed of the woman? And then the missional question. How can we as a people be used in this community to help reverse the curse? So... I had to read this song lyric as we close because I didn't know of any other song that actually spoke exactly of the curse being destroyed. I'm going to read it. I might start singing. When I start singing, do yourselves a favor and sing along so that you don't have to listen to me. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive its king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ, while fields and rocks, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Sing with me, no more let sin, no more let sin and sorrow grow. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make those blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. So our only response should be to say, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the that's what we're going to do as we partake in communion. We are going to celebrate that the seed of the woman's, his heel was broken his, on our behalf, but in doing so, when his blood was poured out, he crushed the head of Satan. I'm going to ask the ushers to come up and distribute the elements. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we encourage you to partake of this with gladness and a grateful heart. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you have sent the Messiah, Lord, that though we have rebelled against you, you have given us freedom 
You have given us salvation from that rebellion. Lord, thank you for being such a wonderful Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.